0: I invite you to turn this evening again to Luke's Gospel and chapter 7. Luke chapter 7, please, for our consideration of the Word of God this evening. Uh, Just a word of encouragement to those that were involved with the virtual VBS. I received a letter just, uh, I guess, two weeks tomorrow ago, (laughs) and they uh, were just remarking on on a number of matters, but... uh, particularly uh, wanting me to express thanks for the work that went into that. Now, I don't think if they're watching tonight, they'll be offended if I say they're more mature. They're not exactly kind of the target audience of our VBS. But nonetheless, they were very encouraged and were thankful for the blessing that it was to them. And no doubt to others and will yet be. You just get surprised sometimes with... The reach of certain things, these individuals are far from where we are here. But we are to labor on, and that's part of what we do. Even at times when doors are closed and opportunities seem to come to an end, we navigate those problems. That's why we did the virtual VBS. But go labor on, tis not for naught, thine earthly loss is heavenly gain. Men heed thee, love thee, praise thee not, the Master praises what are men. The Master praises what are men. And tonight that will certainly be part of what we're considering here this evening. Luke chapter 7, we're going to read from verse 24. Luke chapter 7, verse 24, and read through verse 35. Let us hear the word of the Lord. When the messengers of John were departed, he began to speak unto the people concerning John. What went ye out into the wilderness for to see? A reed shaken with the wind? But what went ye out for to see? A man clothed in soft raiment? Behold, they which are gorgeously apparelled and live delicately are in king's courts. But what went ye out for to see? A prophet? Yea, I say unto you, and much more than a prophet, this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, which shall prepare thy way before thee. For I say unto you, Among those that are born of women, there is not a greater prophet than John the Baptist. But he that is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. And all the people that heard him and the publicans justified God being baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and lawyers rejected the counsel of God against themselves, being not baptized of him. And the Lord said, "Whereunto then shall I liken the men of this generation? And to what are they like? They are like unto children sitting in the marketplace and calling one to another and saying, We have piped unto you, and ye have not danced. We have mourned to you, and ye have not wept. For John the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking wine, and ye say, He hath a devil. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and ye say, Behold, a gluttonous man and a wine-bibber, a friend of publicans and sinners. But wisdom is justified of all her children. Amen. May the Lord give the light that we need by His Spirit as we consider His Word this evening. Let's seek the Lord, let's pray momentarily again, and may every heart... Be desirous for the Lord's Word. Our God, it has been our joy to traverse through this gospel and to come to this point. And we pray that as we continue to seek to understand the lines and what it teaches us concerning our Lord Jesus and the various areas of truth that He directs us to, we pray that Thou wilt give us greater insight and understanding. And again, as we consider these words, we pray that the Holy Ghost would be upon us in our consideration. This is the infallible Word, the unchanging Word, the Word that is mighty to change lives, transform lives. And God, we pray that something of that transformative power would be known. Though we may not observe it in some outward manifest way, may the Word of God have a transforming influence on lives, save those in unbelief and do a work that benefits those that are thy children. So hear prayer. Give help, Lord, amidst all the inability of man. For Jesus' sake, give help, we pray. Amen. One of the prayers of the late evangelist I have mentioned on occasion, W.P. Nicholson, a man that was born in Northern Ireland, but his ministry was extensive across much of the world, including here in America. But one of his prayers was, Lord, save me from public opinion. Save me from public opinion. You might wonder, well, what kind of a prayer is that, and why would someone have to pray that prayer? But what Nicholson understood is that man is by nature fearful. Man is not as courageous or as brave as he might present himself to be. He is inherently fearful. In fact, that is reflected very clearly the moment that he ate the forbidden fruit. He took that which God forbid him from taking. And we find him with his heart being gripped with fear running. And in that case, running from God. But what we find whenever we continue to understand humanity and what the Bible reveals is that not only does man in his fear run away from God, but he will actually run to men. He'll run to the places that can give him no encouragement, really, or no significant, significant help. So he flees from God, and he flees to men. And this is revealed in different ways. For example, in the very first Psalm, we are told, we're warned that men would rather, what? Stand in the way of sinners. In Proverbs chapter 1, we're told that they would, there's that tempta- temptation, rather, to consent to sinners as well. But we are rather like Joseph to run from temptation, to run from what would destroy us, rather than doing that which our carnal hearts desire. Joseph, in Genesis 39, did not care so much what Potiphar's wife thought of him. He just ran. He did what was right. He ran away from her and really was running into the arms of the Lord. And you never become a true bond slave of Christ until you elevate the opinion, if we can use language like that, the opinion of the Lord over all the opinions of men. The true bond slave of Christ elevates the opinion of Christ. That is what matters to Him. And the verses that we're looking at this evening put before us a wonderful reminder of the one that we ought to want to please, the Lord. The Lord. In verses eight through twenty three where we were last time, we considered john 's struggle to due to unmet expectations, he was struggling with his faith, he was wondering why things were not exactly coming and coming to pass as he imagined they would, and we considered that and i 'll not take any time to look at that with you, but he had expectations, and he was preaching that. With the coming Messiah would come judgment, and part of what the Lord really reminds him is those passages in the Old Testament that reflect the fact that there must be mercy from the Messiah. Judgment will come, but mercy must precede judgment. Now, I don't know whether John was ridiculed for the fact that what he had said had not come to pass. He's saying that judgment's coming, he's preaching this. Well, then the one he points to and says is the Lamb of God comes and there's no judgment. Maybe there was ridicule, but whether or not there was ridicule and he was influenced by the opinions of others, thankfully John loved the Lord more than the opinions of men. And that is a key characteristic of discipleship. Elevating the opinions of the Lord. John is struggling with doubt, but he has not allowed his doubt to make him unfaithful. That's important to remember, beloved. Beloved. The Lord Jesus can ask you to do things, call you to go places, and permit things to occur in your life that will test your faith. But thank God, it only takes a little faith to produce great resolve. Even though John's faith was not as strong as it had been at other times, yet it only takes, underline it, remember it, it only takes a little faith to produce great resolve resolve. And if that was not the case, I doubt many of us would be here tonight. We don't claim to have great faith, do we? We're not people of great faith. We're not all examples of, look at them, they've they've wonderful faith. And yet we have sufficient faith. Just a little faith keeps us plodding on the right way amidst our doubts. Even though we have our struggles, we continue on. And to this we can only give praise to God. The Lord's message to John, of course, in verse 23, was short and sweet. Aside from reminding him of messianic passages, he said, Blessed is he whosoever shall not be offended in me. And the Lord is essentially instilling in John a fresh word, encouraging him to persistence. John, don't be offended in me. And that theme essentially carries on. That can be knit or is woven into some of the things that we will consider tonight. And I trust the Lord will help us to bring that out as we look at the verses that are before us. I've given the title to this message, The Only Opinion That Matters. The Only Opinion That Matters. And I want you to see with me, and this will take the bulk of our time, I think, the man with a good reputation. The man with a good reputation. We are told in the passage we're looking at about John again, verse 24 and following, when the messengers of John were departed, he, that's Jesus, began to speak unto the people concerning John, and he puts before them this These questions. Now, take a step back. Remember that John was basically as close as you would get to a celebrity in this day. Everyone knew about John. There wasn't a person who misunderstood you if you said, John said. You you would just have to say, John said, or you remember John, and everyone would know. They wouldn't have to say, what John? The context would perhaps determine that you're talking about some preacher or some religious leader, and you would know that's that John, the one that everyone had been talking about and thousands had been following. He was extremely well known. Unless some standing around would consider that John's credibility was diminished because of the question that came to Jesus on this occasion by the disciples of John, the Lord makes it plain that that is not the case, and He elevates John before the crowd so three times Jesus asks them, what did you go out to see? The assumption is all that are standing there around Jesus know exactly what he's talking about. You all were there. Everyone was there. Thousands went out to see John. And he can make the assumption that even those standing before him on this occasion also, the disciples are gone. They're not there. He's not talking about the disciples. The disciples have returned to take the message back to John. Now he's looking at the crowd that are there and he's again making the assumption you all were there, you all saw it. So, what did you go out to see? And he gives implied answers to it. And I want us to see this, what the Lord says about John here. And note first his inflexibility, his inflexibility. Verse 24 What went you out into the wilderness for to see? A reed shaken with the wind. The consensus of the implication of the answer to this question is, no, you didn't go out to see a reed shaken with the wind. That's not what you went out to see. A reed shaken in the wilderness that moves with the wind, that's that's not how you would describe John. John was a rugged prophet. Nowhere is that more obvious than in his refusal to adapt to the culture he lived in. He was different than everyone. And he deliberately distinguished himself from the religious elite of the day in order that it would help people pay attention. And so he removes himself from society in a very distinct fashion. We'll see that in just a moment. But John was not after being accepted by people, especially the elites. He didn't care what they thought. I'm not going to take time to go back and look at what he preached, but he was very clear in the message that he declared, and he was not trying to win friends and influence people. He was just telling the truth, and that came with a certain abrasiveness. He had died to himself. He was in the mold of the old prophets, and Israel had not met the like of John in centuries. They'd heard of men like John. They'd read of men like Elijah and Elisha and others of their caliber, Jeremiah, Isaiah, and so on. They knew of these men, and John comes in the mold of a man who is completely inflexible. You can't move this man. This is a man who cannot be described as a reed shaken in the wind. He doesn't move with with the slightest gust of wind. This is a man that you can't bend. Man of resolve. Rather, if we were to use scripture concerning John, we might use the language of Psalm 104, verse 16, that he was a tree of the Lord. A tree of the Lord. Or like Psalm 92, verse 12, which speaks of the cedar of Lebanon flourishing like a palm tree. That's the characteristics of John a cedar or a palm tree that's rooted and grown and can't be moved. That's John. C.H. Spurgeon remarks here, He was not like so many preachers nowadays. You are swayed by the ever-changing opinion of the age. The thought of these modern times, so we're going back probably 150 years, the thought of these modern times and so prove themselves to be mere reeds shaken with the wind. End quote. <laughs> Spurgeon had to remark that it was common to find such preachers in his day. Do you think things have improved? No, they haven't. They haven't, and I wish people would take this into consideration when they were looking for a church. It's not the only thing to consider, but the character of the man, trying to discern does he does he wave in the wind? Does he does he does he move with the wind? Is he always trying to appeal to the sensibilities of people and morph the gospel into some kind of acceptable way that will be received by everyone and offend no one? You ladies, of course, will remember Mr. Collins and Jane Austen's well-known Pride and Prejudice. Some of the men might be familiar with it as well. Well she may have embellished a little with the kind of minister and that may be common, but it's not too far away. He, he's the kind of sickly looking creature that so often really kind of does describe the clergy, a minister. It's always pleasing people, especially the elites, of course. I'm trying to remember her name. Lady Catherine De Burg, that's it. <laughs> Always trying to please her. Many ministers are like them. They may not look exactly like that today, but you have to be very discerning. They try to present themselves sometimes as strong men denouncing issues and problems, but be very careful and try to discern what they're denouncing. Because often what they denounce are things that aren't relevant anymore. But try to see where they are on the issues today. Where are they in the opening chapters of Genesis? Where are they in matters of marriage and gender? Where are they in matters relating to socialism and economics? And where are they there? The issues that are pressing right now. Oh, they would have been bold against the Nazis, going by their rhetoric. But when it comes to issues confronting us today, instead of saying, for example, your behavior is sin, they will tell you that's not really God's plan for human flourishing. And I'm paraphrasing some very popular people. It's not God's plan for human flourishing. When you hear that, be very careful because they're presenting sin as a matter that only hurts yourself and others, refusing to express it in clear terms as rebellion against God. But human flourishing, well, they unconvert it. They want human flourishing, don't they? They want their own flourishing life. And so you present the the issue in such a way that is acceptable. This is really the reason why we're against this. The reason why, uh, as a Bible believer, uh, we see this as wrong is because God has made it clear it's not really for human flourishing. That's, you, that's, that's Mr. Collins, right there. Not against thee, the only, have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight. It is the lawgiver's law I have broken. Not, I'm not to prioritize my own comfort levels. And so the reason I avoid sin is merely for my own comfort. The primary reason you avoid sin is because God said. God's spoken. God's made it to be sin. He said this is sin. He's distinguished it. He's... Outline that this is wrong, and anything that rebels against it is sin and rebellion against God. Fundamentally, before you get to the aspects of personal flourishing or community flourishing. Anyway, John was not like that. John was not like that. John was clear, and I, I'm resisting. The, well, I have to. I have to go, just in case you don't know. Go back to Luke chapter three. Verse 3, he came into all the country about Jordan preaching the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. He's not preaching about human flourishing. He's preaching about a sin problem. Their rebellion against God. And he's treating them, Israelites, as if they're Gentiles. Calling them to baptism, to be washed. Verse 7, he said to the multitude that came forth to be baptized of him, O generation of vipers, you're like serpents. You're like the person that we read of in Genesis 3, who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Bring forth therefore fruits worthy of repentance, not about human flourishing. Repentance, show your hatred of your sin. And begin not to say within yourselves, we have Abraham to our father. Begin not to think and consider all the great religious status that you have. I say unto you that God is able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. And so some of them come concerned. Verse 10, the people asked him, saying, What shall we do then? He answered and said unto them, He that hath two coats, let him impart to him that hath none. Get rid of your covetousness. And he that hath meat, let him do likewise. And the publicans come to be baptized and said, Master, what shall we do? And he said unto them, Exact no more than that which is upon you. He's looking for change of their lives. Evidence of the repentance. The soldiers likewise demanded of him, saying, And what shall we do? And he said unto them, Do violence to no man, neither accuse any falsely. These are behaviors he saw in their lives common among them. And be content with your wages. John addressed the sin matters of the life. And because they were fundamentally against God, rebellion against God, and he did not mince his words. When I read that, I'm challenged. I thought to myself, if you ever if this congregation ever thinks I'm abrasive, I could think you can be thankful you don't have John the Baptist standing before you. But at the same time, wouldn't it be a tragedy if we began to tailor our messages in such a fashion where we're trying to craft them carefully to offend the fewest number of people? What an awful way to bring God's word. And if you ever detect that, somehow, <laughs> tell me. <laughs> you can send me a bunch of flowers and have a little note in them. Your sermons are like flowers. They're very pretty, but they're a bit pathetic. They don't change anything. They'll make a difference. So he's inflexible. We see that. He's not a reed shaking in the wind. Note also his indifference. Verse 25. What went you out for to see? A man clothed in soft raiment? Is that what you went out to see? Behold, they which are gorgeously apparelled and live delicately are in king's courts. Now, again, they didn't go out to see a man who was dressed in fine clothing. Such scenes could be observed in towns and cities, and as the Lord says here, king's courts. You don't go out to the wilderness to see this, and if that was what they went out to the wilderness to see, they would have been greatly disappointed. We know from other scriptures that John was dressed in camel hair, very ordinary, rough. As we've said, he was marked by indifference to the things that were appealing to the religious elite of his day. He was indifferent to unnecessary material things. He del- lived a deliberately ascetic life to draw a distinction between himself and the most religious leaders of the day. And I also think he was motivated in his asceticism to, to help him be the role that he was called to be. Because John had a sin nature. And he's being the forerunner of the spotless Lamb of God. And so his resolve to be, live an ascetic Separated life is in part to wean him away from the world so that he can make right preparation for the Messiah. He's not like the Messiah. He has a nature that's fighting fighting against him. So he's not necessarily a role model in that way, and all called to such an ascetic life. But it certainly gives us a perspective of material things, doesn't it? And I'll tell you, we, we live in times of great wealth, prosperity, comfort. I'm not going to say that it's wrong. God has been pleased to do it in this time. And, but also, I realize that He may be pleased to, to change things. I mean, anyone who follows national economics, and you can't see the national debt rise and wonder, <laughs> where's this going? I mean, where is it going? Every time you run that machine there, Mr. Powell, everything we have gets diminished in its value. You just keep running the machine, mounting up the national debt. Where does it end? Will it collapse? I don't know. Sometimes we do not realize that Jesus is all we need until Jesus is all we have if you learn to rejoice at that point, it is a very freeing experience. Remember the prophet Habakkuk. Although the fig tree shall not blossom, neither shall the fruit be in the vines. The labor of the olive shall fail and the fields shall yield no meat. The flocks shall be cut off from the fold and their shall be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. John understood this. His delight was God, not material things. So they didn't go out to see someone dressed in soft apparel, gorgeously appareled. No, 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 that wasn't it. At all. And what the Lord Jesus then is doing here is clearing away the fog that sometimes clouded the conversation about John. When people spoke of John, they thought about his diet, they thought about the kind of character that he was, or the clothing that he wore. But none of that was at the heart of why thousands went to see him. Which brings us then to the third question What went you out for to see? A prophet? Yea, I say unto you, I much more than a prophet. This is the heart of the point. He was a prophet and everyone knew it. This comes out even later in Luke's Gospel, Luke chapter 20. And Jesus draws attention to it. You all know he was a prophet and this is why he went out. But he raises it. He doesn't leave it just as being a prophet, but he raises the importance of John. Not to flatter John, because John's disciples are already gone, but what the Lord Jesus is doing is essentially applying the fifth commandment. He's reminding them that John was a spiritual father in their midst, one that ought to be respected and loved. Like most prophets, however, he was not one that really was appreciated. He declared the truth, unmoved by the opinions of men. And he was much more than a prophet. And the question is, well, what exactly does that get at? What does Jesus mean here? And the answer is given in verse 27. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, which shall prepare thy way before thee. Malachi 3 verse 1. That the messenger prophesied there's not the Messiah, but the forerunner to the Messiah... This is hinted at also in Luke chapter one, verse seventeen, relating to the birth of John, and he shall go before him, that's before Messiah, in the spirit and power of Elijah, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. This is John. He is fulfilling prophecy. And so the greatness of John relative to the other prophets was not moral greatness, but greatness in terms of privilege. Scripture prophesied of this prophet. It's not something you find about other prophets. And furthermore, it prophesied in in terms of the job he was given to be the forerunner of the Messiah. What a privilege. So he was a prophet, yes, but I say unto you, much more than a prophet. Not simply your average prophet, but this is a prophesied prophet to to come before the ultimate prophet. Preparing the way, what a labour! what a man. No, I really, it's it's important that we understand this, and it will become clear in just a moment as well, even more so, why this is important to see, that the elevation of John relates to the privilege that was given to him, not him being more holy, perhaps, than Elijah or others. And that brings us then to this difficult saying that we find in verse 28. I say unto you, among those that are born of women, there is not a greater prophet than John the Baptist. There's underly, underlining rather, what was said in verse 26. Of all prophets born, there's none greater than John the Baptist. But it's not moral. It's privilege. And the end of verse 28 we see it that way because of what is said here. But he that is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Now if we were to take it in terms of morality, then the assumption here is that those spoken of here are greater than John in terms of their moral fiber, their character. But that's, that's not what Jesus is saying here. Of course, you have to understand what the kingdom of God is. Do you understand what the kingdom of God is? He that is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. The kingdom of God is something that's spoken of in other passages throughout the New Testament. But I'll read just some passages from Luke's Gospel. first one that came before that we've already considered, Luke 6, verse 20, when Jesus lifted up his eyes and his disciples and said, Blessed be ye poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Later on in Luke chapter 11, verse 20, Jesus says, But if I, with the finger of God, cast out devils, no doubt the kingdom of God has come upon you. So something present. Or Luke 17, verse 20 and 21. When he was demanded of the Pharisees when the kingdom of God should come, he answered them and said, The kingdom of God cometh not with observation. Neither shall they say, Lo, here, or lo, there. For behold, the kingdom of God is within you. The kingdom of God comes by Jesus Christ bringing the revelation of Himself. John is preparing the way for the ushering in of a people that belong to a kingdom, and they become part of it by something that is not visible to the eye, but is real in the heart. What Jesus is saying is true of those who enter the kingdom in the present, right now as He was living He that is least in the kingdom of God, those that come into the kingdom of God, here and now, as the kingdom has been ushered in, is greater than John. So what's the point? How do we understand this? How is it that those who come in to know Christ now are greater than John? It can't be their morality. It's not it. So how are those that are receiving Christ... Responding to the message in the present and right up even now. How is it that it can be said that we are greater than John? It's relating to privilege. The privilege that comes on those that believe now. It is our positioning in relation to Messiah's redemptive work. John was the last of the Old Testament era. If anyone tries to ask you a trick question by saying who was the last of the Old Testament prophets and you Malachi, well, they're probably trying to trick you. John was the last of the Old Testament prophets. And he he said, This kingdom's coming. It's at hand. He was preaching in that way. And he preached repentance and pointed to a savior who would die. Whereas those following John, we don't just preach repentance and point to the Messiah who will die. But we get to fill in more details. We get to preach of His death, of His resurrection, of His ascension as historical reality. We get to see Jesus usher in a time when the Mediator has completed His atoning work and ascended up to heaven to make intercession for His people and is putting all enemies under His feet. We're seeing that. And so it's in terms of privilege. It's in terms of privilege This is what Jesus is saying, that those who come, those who are least in the kingdom of God, those who are least that have come in now, as John has been preaching, as I am preaching, as the apostles will continue to preach, they are greater than John in terms of privilege because of what they see happening. And the message they're able to declare and the confidence they have in it. We have greater privilege and knowledge, not greater in terms of morality. So again, look back over the text. John is the greatest prophet because he ushered in, in terms of privilege, the Messiah. None born of woman or greater have been more privileged than John because of this responsibility and privilege given to him. But he that is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he because you come after John and you see even more of the redemptive work of the Messiah. And this is what you get to preach. This is what you get to tell the world. Not pointing, behold the Lamb, in terms of something that's yet to come, but behold the Lamb as the one who's already accomplished the work. So we come to verse 29. And I want us to see here the people with a varied response. The people with a varied response. We've seen the man with a good reputation. We want to see the people with a varied response. Verses 29 and 30, And all the people that heard him and the publicans justified being baptized with the baptism of John, but the Pharisees and lawyers rejected the counsel of God against themselves being not baptized of him. This is a little insight into what had been happening through the ministry of John. The people that heard John, the publicans, all those that heard him, they justified God being baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and lawyers rejected the counsel of God against themselves, being not baptized of Him. So we have two types of people here. You have the humble and you have the proud. The humble are given in verse 29. The people, the publicans, who justified God. What does that mean? To justify means to declare something is right. So what they're doing here is they are affirming that God is right in what He has declared. In this case, what was John declaring? He was declaring the reality of where the people were, in their sin and unbelief. No one else is telling them this, and, and John comes and says, "Look, you are in unbelief and sin. Israel is like a heathen nation, how we're living right now. Repent of your sin, turn from your sin." He made it clear. made it clear to them so they understood. And they agreed. This is why they justified God. They agreed, not with John. Of course they were agreeing with John, but they were agreeing with God. You must come to this if you're ever to be saved. You must be able to agree with God about what God says concerning you. Salvation is not bargaining. You don't get to sit down with God and draw up terms and say, well, you know, I'll be a Christian, if we can agree, Lord, with these terms. You don't get to bargain with God. The only option you have is to agree with Him or to not agree. Those great sinners of the generation, those that were living at that time, they agreed. They could see it. John was like, I was going to say like a fresh breeze into Israel, but he was more like a hurricane. And he got people's attention. Some of the great sinners who were just plodding on in their sin on the way to hell, they are arrested by John. And John's painting the scene, essentially telling them, they're on the way to hell. Don't begin to say, we be of Abraham's seed. Don't start pointing to your circumcision. Don't start declaring yourself to be of the tribe of this one or that one. Don't start down that path. God says you're a great sinner. You're on the way to hell. Repent and be baptized. And they agreed. They said, John, you're right. What? What do we need to do? Do you agree with God? Do you agree with what God says about your sin? We have the proud here as well. Verse 30. The Pharisees and lawyers rejected the counsel of God against themselves being not baptized of him. I love how this is put. It's something that I, I will remind you of occasionally. And it's right here. An important reminder. The Pharisees and lawyers rejected the counsel of God Now, let's hold on a minute. Had God come down to Sinai and spoke to them, addressed them? No. So in what way were they receiving counsel from God? Through the faithful preaching of the prophet. If the preacher... And what he says cannot be described as declaring the counsel of God, get rid of him. This is why when we come on the Lord's Day or any occasion, when the Word of God is put before you, whatever the instrument, whatever the person, whoever it might be, Sunday school teacher, parent, preacher, If they're telling you what God says, it is the counsel of God. It's not opinions up for debate. It is the counsel of God. The Apostle Paul records in Acts, or it's recorded of him in Acts 20, verse 27, when he said again, we referred to this passage this morning, as he stood before the elders in Ephesus, or from Ephesus, He says, for I have not shunned to declare unto you all the counsel of God. I haven't shied away from telling you all the counsel of God. Why was that significant? Going back to the point, men like John are not, there's not enough of them. Men who will give you the counsel of God, who will repeatedly give you the counsel of God, who will faithfully give you the counsel of God, who will tell you what God says about your sin, and are more concerned with the opinion of God than your opinion. Men like John aren't common. Men like the apostle are not common. Paul, in saying this, is essentially saying also to those elders before him, model me. Don't shun, don't defer, don't avoid declaring The whole counsel of God. This is part of the reason why we preach this way. Why? Because sequentially, go through scripture. It's not the only way. I'm not bound to it as the only way to preach. But it is helpful in holding me to account to give to you every line, every word of God, all that is said, and make sure you understand it and apply it as is relevant. You could bounce around from one verse to the other and bring some nice poetic thoughts. But it won't do you any good. It's not what God has called us to do. The counsel of God. So if you're here tonight as an unbeliever, I want you to know, as you have heard the word of God perhaps on numerous occasions, maybe more times than you can count, the Pharisees and lawyers rejected the counsel of God. They weren't rejecting John. I mean, they were, but it wasn't just John. They were rejecting the counsel of God. God was coming to them through John, speaking to them directly, and they would reject the counsel of God. Now tell me how it ends up for someone who rejects the counsel of God. Does it end up, well... It will never end well for the person who rejects the counsel of God. This is why preaching is so serious. It's why I, don't, I, I frankly do not care. If the manner of delivery these days is largely to go up and kind of speak softly and nicely with you, I don't care. And It's not that I'm trying to be different for the sake of it, but it's, <laughs> maybe if you begin in the open air, you just carry the manner through. I don't know. Maybe it's personality. Maybe it's the Scots-Irish. Maybe it's the Armenian enemy. I don't know what it is, but I have no apology for it. None. None. I was encouraged just a few weeks ago as I was reading some history of a particular Puritan preacher, and even then, when sometimes they are painted or the portrait of them is so staid, this man, this man preached with such passion, such power. was afraid to pour out his heart. And Thomas Goodwin went to hear him. He left. And he lay on his horse and just wept. John thundered. John thundered. He stood in the wilderness and he lifted up his voice like a trumpet. And the humble said, John, you're right. The proud said, no. No. If you have a margin, it says they re- about the Pharisees and lawyers rejected the counsel of God within themselves. Maybe that's part of the sense Jesus knows that you're rejecting inwardly. That in your heart, you don't say to anyone else because you're surrounded by people who profess to believe and submit, those who declare themselves to be part of verse 29. But in your heart, really, you're verse 30, and within yourself, you reject the counsel of God. But it is manifest by your outward behavior you won't be baptized. You won't identify with Christ. You won't identify with the truth. God calls for a response. He calls for us to agree with what He has said. Thirdly, the parable with a humbling revelation. The parable with a humbling revelation. Verse 31 And the Lord said, Whereunto then shall I liken? the men of this generation, and to what are they like? They are like unto children sitting in the marketplace and calling one to another and saying, We have piped unto you, and ye have not danced. We have mourned to you, and ye have not wept. For John the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking wine, and ye say he hath the devil. The Son of Man is come eating and drinking, and ye say, Behold, a gluttonous man and a winebibber, a friend of publicans and sinners. But wisdom is justified, of all our children. The Lord gives a parable, a very humbling one, that reveals the heart of those that were just described. He depicts the rejecters as children. Apparently children would play games in the street in those days and they would have a game and they would complain when someone wouldn't join in. So we have piped, so that you might dance, but but you won't do it. We've also mourned, and you won't join in. You won't weep with us. And both of these are addressed, one to John and one to Jesus. In relation to John, John came neither eating bread nor drinking wine. He's a sober-minded man. And they piped to him, essentially this is what the Lord is he's drawing an illustration that would have been common in that day. And he's saying, this is like the children. This is like the game that the children play. You pipe and you're meant to dance. Well, you pipe, but John wouldn't join in with the dance. And so he criticized him. He criticized him because he's, he's too sober. He's too austere. But then God sends another prophet. The prophet, the Son of Man. And you're looking at him and you're saying, well, look at him. Eating and drinking, gluttonous, wine-bibber, friend of publicans and sinners. In this case, now we're mourning and you're meant to join in. It's the two extremities. Piping for dancing, mourning that you might weep. It's illustrating the disparity, the distinction between John and Jesus in their approach, at least how it was perceived and observed. And the point is this. You have one man who appears very austere. You have another who appears to be more social and so on. Of course, both of them are are exaggerating the reality. John wasn't so austere and Jesus wasn't so social like they're saying here. A gluttonous man and a wine-bibber, that's lies. But this is what they're saying. And this is what they say about John. This is what they say about Jesus. The point is this. God sends you one type of character, you criticize him. He sends a complete opposite type of character, you criticize him. You will not agree. It doesn't matter about the messenger. So you sit back and say the fault is with the man. But the point is this, you will not take the truth. You won't accept the truth. John's declaring the truth. He's giving the counsel of God. I'm giving the counsel of God. And though you're criticizing us, saying one's this way and one's that way, the heart of the reality is this, you will not accept the truth. Oh, they want God to send just the perfect kind of prophet. Well, what does that look like? Tell us what that kind of perfect prophet would look like. And the answer would be, One who tells us what we want to hear. What good will that do you? One who tells you what you want to hear. When you're lost. On your way to hell. Perishing in your sin. Under the judgment of God. In the language of Jesus Christ, the wrath of God abides. It hangs over you. And you want someone just to come and tell you what you want to hear? Now the problem here is not in John and not in Jesus. The problem is with you. You will not accept the truth, regardless of who says it. This was Israel's historical problem. It wasn't just a first-century issue. It it was a pattern. <laughs> And God had allowed four centuries to pass, essentially with with no one of this kind of caliber, no prophet like this. Four hundred centuries. And perhaps you might think with the four centuries of silence they would be humbled, begging God, send us another prophet. We'll treat him, we'll treat him right this time. But they don't. They follow the pattern of their fathers. Luke 13. Verse 34, Jesus laments, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, which killest the prophets and stonest them that are sent unto thee. That's what you do. That's what you do, Jerusalem. You keep killing the prophets. doesn't matter whether it be Isaiah, a man of strength and courage in a very visible way, or another man like Jeremiah who weeps and sobs and Laments. It doesn't matter kind of the difference of the nature of the character. You will, you will just not listen to what is said. In fact, you will silence them by, by murdering them. How often would I have gathered thy children together? As a hen doth gather her brood under her wings, and ye would not. You wouldn't come. I sent and I sent and I sent. I sent this kind of person. I sent that kind of person. I've sent you, John. Neither the son of God is here. And nothing is right because you simply will not agree with God concerning his truth. But wisdom is justified of all her children. fruit of John and Jesus' ministry is found in those, is justified by those who respond. The disciples of John were the better for having heeded what he said and responding to the message he brought, as were the disciples of Jesus. Every Christian here, regardless of what the unbeliever says and their mockery against Christ, the testimony of the privilege and the joy that it is to be a disciple of Jesus Christ comes from the mouth of every Christian saying, I don't care what you say, I know whom I have believed and I am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. That I am my beloved's and he is mine and his banner over me is love. That I'm a child of the king, that I belong to him, I'm adopted into the family of God, and yes, blessed be, ye poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Wisdom is justified of all our children. So as you sit there in your unbelief, perhaps, continuing to reject the counsel of God, what God says about your sin, what God says about your future if you reject Christ, as you continue to reject it, there are all these other voices that say to you, that proclaim to you of the blessing and privilege of submission, of agreeing with what God says about us, not fighting it, not trying to paint it in different colors. Not trying to imagine that my sin's not really that bad. You're just, oh, you preacher, you like to take a little white sin and you make it this huge big deal as if God's going to put me in hell for it. No, that's not the preacher doing that. That's what the Word of God says. Every idle word that men shall speak, they will give account thereof and that they have judgment. That's not my language. That's the language of Christ. Every idle word, not just great acts of sin, the very idle word, the word spoken almost without thought, yet remembered, jotted, recorded by God to be held to account. And every child of God, therefore, even now in your heart, says, praise God, hallelujah, how many idle words I have spoken But I agree, it was wrong, it was sinful. I need the blood of Christ to wash it away. I need God's answer. I need a ransom. I need a substitute. I need a mediator. I need one to wash away my guilt and shame. I agree, preacher. I accept the counsel of God. There is only one. Neither is there salvation in any other. There is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. The answer is Jesus. Jesus only. So you sit there, perhaps this evening, just like the religious leaders. And the question I have for you is, whose opinion matters to you? Blessed is he whosoever shall not be offended of me. Don't be offended. Don't be put off. Don't be driven away. So I say to you, sinner, as God gives counsel about you, the counsel of God comes to you. You as a sinner before God, needing Jesus Christ, whose opinion matters? Whose opinion will win out? God's. Your own? Your friends? Your family? Whose opinion wins? Because if you are not saved, you are walking out tonight and there's one opinion. I don't know whether it's yours, your friend, your family, or where the opinion is, but I'll tell you this. You walk out rejecting Christ. You have rejected the counsel of God. You've said no to God's opinion. But there's only one opinion that matters. And blessed are those who are not offended in Jesus Let's bow together in prayer. If you read, I think it may be John chapter 7, but Certainly one portion where the Lord Jesus revealed is that the only reason the Pharisees wouldn't turn to him and believe was because they wanted respect, they wanted glory one of another. The heart of their unbelief was not due to a lack of evidence. It wasn't due to not being persuaded. It was simply this. They wanted to stay tight, with the other unbelievers and they wouldn't step out and follow Jesus and they perished it takes a decision John called people to get out and prove their following by baptism I call you tonight not by baptism but simply by simply this it is time to make the declaration in your heart Lord Jesus I'm not going to fight anymore. I've been fighting this for too long. I know I'm a sinner. I confess it. And I come bringing my wicked heart that I might have a new heart. I want to love you, Jesus. I want to follow you. I want to serve you. Please save my never-dying soul. Lord, should there be one this evening and they know they need to be saved and they're battling this very moment, I pray you will graciously give grace to them to accept the counsel of God, to take what you say in your word about us calling us out as sinners. There's none righteous, no, not one, none who understands, none who seeks after God. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. This is what you tell us. And should there be one here ready to agree with that reality, may they know the joy of sins forgiven as they turn their sins onto Jesus Christ and look to the Lamb to wash them and set them free. So save those battling this moment, do the miracle of the new birth in their hearts. And may all glory and praise go to thy great name, for salvation is of the Lord. Be with us then. In our fellowship, bless the food provided downstairs, encourage those who remain behind. And may the grace of our Lord Jesus, the love of God our Father, and the fellowship of the Spirit be with all thy people now and evermore. Amen.